0: Amen. Please be seated. And you can turn uh, in your bulletin if you wish or to your copy of the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 66. And I have the verses for you on the insert. I want to welcome some people. We have the the Heartland PCA students with us for our youth retreat that happens starting this evening. So it's great to have Pastor Gary Goodrich and uh, students from Heartland, some students from Dort College here as well. And uh, while I was there, I texted my son and asked why he couldn't come visit if these young men could have come and visited. But we're glad you're all here, here with uh, visiting Dave Shank. So welcome to Redeemer. I hope you feel welcome here. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Isaiah. That is uh, this great prophet of the Old Testament. We are in the last chapter, starting chapter 66. Uh, the book of Isaiah opened with a call to Isaiah to preach God's word. But Isaiah could not respond because he was a man of unclean lips in a place with unclean people. So God had to bring cleansing to him so he could bring the message. Um, Before he could be used of God, he had to approach God properly. And the book on the whole tells us how we might rightly be related to God. It's through the sacrifice of the faithful servant, uh, the epitome of which is pictured in chapter 53 with the Messiah laying his life down for us. We can only come to God through the Messiah. We can only come Through that faithful servant who represents us. And so the book has a lot to say about fakeness, about emptiness, about outward expressions with no inward reality. It really confronts fake worship, especially. And we can think of fake worship, even what we're doing now, could be fake. The outward expressions could all be unreal to us. We could just be acting. Uh, No matter what that form looks like, it could really be disingenuous, But it's not just about our formal times of worship, it's also we approach God every day of our lives, and every aspect of our life is supposed to be an offering up to God if we are in Christ. And this is written to people who say they are in God's Messiah, or trust in God's redemption for them. In the Old Testament, it looked forward, we look back, it's for those who say they're believers to be careful about this emptiness that could be true of our worship, not just formally, but in our life in general. So with that, we come to these opening verses. I want you to hear as I read God's inspired and inerrant word, Isaiah 66, verse 1 and verse 2, how we might approach God. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, your holy word has just been read. Please cause a melting of our hearts. Make us to sense your presence through your spirit, that we know that you are moving in us, and make us to show the deepest attention to your word preached this morning. We seek to approach you, our Heavenly Father. Make your word precious to us in these days. Give us humility as we come to you through Christ. Give us contrition about our sin and our weakness. Cause us to tremble with awe at your word, especially your word of promise of the forgiveness of sins through the death of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. I pray this in his name. Amen. Spiritual revivals happen in the church and among God's people when God sends a fresh breath of his Holy Spirit upon us. Revivals are not things we can conjure. You don't schedule them. You can't make them happen by doing certain things or following certain methods. It's based on the will of God, and he does it when he wants to. Now, he uses ordinary means for this. There's nothing out of the ordinary that he uses to bring this revival. He brings it with his word. He brings it through his sacraments and through prayer. And when he decides that he'll do this work in his people... It is obvious, and how it's most obvious is the way the people of God respond to the Word of God. The responsiveness of God's Word preached, the preciousness of God's Word is evident in the hearts and lives of those who have been revived. And God has to do this. We can pray for this, but God is the one who has to do this work in our midst in, a, in an amazing way. I was alerted in one of the commentaries I read to a particular revival that broke out in Scotland among the Scottish Presbyterians. And the Presbyterians were not known to be the most revivalistic, uh, but these Presbyterians were struck by the Spirit of God in a special way in the early 1800s. And there's a wonderful record of all the things that were noticed among the people of those churches in the area of Glasgow around 1830 to 1840. Listen to one of the descriptions. It was a common thing as soon as the Bible was opened after the preliminary services... And just as the reader began, for great meltings to come upon the hearers, the deepest attention was paid to every word as the sacred verses were slowly and solemnly enunciated. Then the silent tear might be seen stealing down the rugged but expressive faces turned upon the reader. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. That's how you know God is breathing a revival upon his people. The word of the Lord is precious. The second verse of the text that I read from our passage today describes how we should approach God. Look at the second part of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, God is not impressed with our worship practices, as careful as we may be, our rituals, or whether it be a cold recitation of liturgy or the lively outward display complete with the raising of hands and shouts of amen or whatever. Not that those things can't be genuine, but they often can be fake no matter what style you have. God's not impressed with our buildings or the program offerings of the church. God's not impressed with the outward displays of religious devotion. God is not impressed with our numbers or any other surface-level thing. He looks deeper than that. He knows our hearts. He knows our humility. He knows our contrition. He knows what we think of his word, how we respond to his word. In fact, Oswald, who comments on this passage, said, Empty ritualism that does not symbolize a genuinely repentant and obedient heart is actually worse than useless. God is looking for humility and contrition, not ritualism and rebellion. Verse 2, the second part again, But this is the one to whom I will look or regard, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But that's difficult. I cannot conjure humility myself. I'm not humble on my own. I don't have contrition about my brokenness on my own. That's a, a tall order, God, that you would call us to this. Well, in our passage, he's speaking to a particular situation in Judah. But God gives in this passage a universal way to approach him. First, we start with beholding God's greatness. When we behold God's greatness, it, by God's design, drives us to humility, brings up contrition, and makes us stand in awe of his revelation, of his word. So it's not that you have to sit here and be more humble, try to be more humble, just behold the greatness of God for a bit and you will see how it begins to work. God does this work even in his people and that's how revival actually happens. He does this work and he does so by giving us a correct picture of his greatness. It's hard for us to have a correct picture on our own because we conjure images of God that serve us so often. Our thoughts of God are often way too small. But when we have a picture like the scriptures designed for us to see then we see this progression start happening. We start by beholding the greatness of God, especially in comparison to us. From this place of wonderment about God's greatness, we exhibit genuine humility. That's all we can be when we know how great God is. And then we show contrition about our sins in the face or in the presence of this God, and this draws us to revere his word, and in particular, the announcement of his gospel and his word. The revelation of Christ paying for our sins, making us able to approach God now clothed in his righteousness. Look first at the beginning of the passage, verse 1, as we see our approach to God, beginning with a beholding of his greatness. If you, uh, in your spirit, were checked and say, I know that I'm supposed to be humble, but I don't know how to be humble. Here, this is how. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne. This is where God rules from. In the earth, He kicks up His feet upon. That's the human picture. Heaven is this place bigger than the earth. This is where God dwells. It stands outside the whole of God's creation. Heaven is where He is, it's the place from which He reigns. It's superior to this small place called earth. It was from heaven that God created the heavens, the created heavens, and the earth. Heaven is greater than all of these. Heaven is where God sits. That's where his throne is. That's where he sits and rules. That's the picture. From heaven, he exercises his power and his sovereign dominion. It's from there he looks down on the smaller. He can put his feet upon it. This thing that's so great to us is so small to him. It's just part of his massive creation. His throne is a lofty place of sovereign command. His throne is an elevated place. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. It's putting us in our place when we realize who we are trying to approach, whose presence we're coming into. What about the earth compared to heaven? Earth is his footstool. God rests his feet on the earth. The earth sits under his resting feet. The earth matters to God, but it's a place that he has created for his service. The earth is God's concern, but there's much more. The earth serves God. The earth glorifies God. The earth is not the center of the universe, let alone God's universe. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. We begin to see where we fit into this grand scheme. Verse 1 is telling us about none other than the great God of heaven and earth. Now, I fully get what I just said. um, Doesn't get the response here necessarily. I mean, we are a predominantly white, middle-class, suburban, liturgical church. Someone was trying to type in liturgical to tell their friend what our church was like. It said lethargical instead of liturgical. So we're a lethargical church. So I get when I say something like the great God of heaven and earth, you sit there. But when I was in Chicago and I was going to an inner city church, I would never get away with that. If I would have said that we are here to talk about the great God of heaven and earth, there would have been a much greater response. But alas, I'm one of you too, and I understand. But Isaiah 45, that we covered many months ago, says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me, I and the Lord, and there is no other. I can't just tell you to be humble and contrary, but I can tell you about the greatness of God as the word proclaims it. And that will bring to the regenerate a real sense of their place, and it will bring us to that humble moment we need. Look at verse 1, the last part now. After stating his greatness, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? He's talking in particular about the temple. Now, remember, he ordained the temple to be built very specifically. It has an important purpose. But it was supposed to come from the people's dependence upon God and their obedience of God because of their obedience to God because of what he had done for them in redeeming them. So the temple symbolized his presence with them. It's an important building, no doubt. It's not that it has no purpose. But the temple became for the Israelites in Isaiah's day. It became a point of national pride to the nations. They were concerned with upkeeping it as Babylon was encroaching because they didn't want to lose their identity as a particular people. It was their pride. It was something they built to show everybody um, who they were, and what their identity was, and remind them of their history. It was about their pride at this point. It had turned from a place of of picturing God's presence and their devotion to this God who had saved them to a a point of pride. In fact, this was also a bit of a blueprint. They were concerned with when they came under Babylon's exile and they returned from exile eventually, um, they would want to build this temple back. That would be the first thing they want to do. And it's not to show God something. It's to show the people of earth something. And so God says... I'm in heaven. That's where my throne is. The earth is my footstool. What's this building you're building for me? That's the point. The great God looks at the building and essentially scoffs. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Before we can truly approach God, we must recognize and respect who we are approaching. Yes, God is our heavenly Father. Yes, he calls us his children. Yes, he is approachable because of Christ. Yes, you can talk to him wherever you are. You don't need formal language to do so. Yes, God cares for you personally. But this is the great God of heaven and earth we are talking about. And he is worthy of our worship, our praise, our devotion, and our service. He looks at man's construction of a temple and says in the first part of verse 2 now, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. The thing that you look to with pride because you built it, this monument of your greatness, O oh man, I gave you the stuff. You could not build it without me. Our greatest constructions come from his hands, no matter what they are, no matter what people uh, do by way of giving him credit. There are lots of things that we call great that man has made. The Great Wall of China spans 13,000 miles. That is amazing. It started its construction process at the same time Isaiah was in Israel. In Asia, that wall started to be built. It took 2,000 years up and through the Ming Dynasty before it was completed. 13,000 miles. You can see it from space with some magnification. The Great Wall the Great Pyramids, built in a time without near, nearly the abilities with the, the kinds of earth-moving equipment and cranes and things, and they build this thing. These things that still stand today, thousands of years later, though eroded, they're still standing, the Great Pyramids. Can't see those from space without a lot of magnification, though. Then there was a great mall in Olathe at one time. There was. For the younger, there was a great mall there. The things we call great is people. They're really not that great. I mean, he has to squint to see them. Remember in the Old Testament when they were building the Tower of Babel and the inhabitants of earth thought it was the greatest thing ever? They built it so it, as to get in the face of God. So if he ever sent another flood, they couldn't, they couldn't die. And we're going we're gonna to, def- right in the face of God. And it says in the text back in Genesis... God came down to see what the the hands of men had done. It's meant to say he couldn't see it from heaven. He had to get down low to see it. That's the greatness of man in the face of God. That's how great we are. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. We have no pride that we can attach to these things. They are from God. God looks at the wheel God looks at the printing press. God looks at the steam engine. God looks at the telegraph. God looks at optical lenses. God looks at the compass. God looks at the electric generator. God looks at all these things and says, all these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God looks at the internal combustion engine. God looks at the automobile. He looks at the airplane. He looks at the colossal ocean liner. He looks at wood and cement and steel. He looks at the massive 80 to 90-story skyscraper. He looks at all these things and says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He does not allow for any glory to go to man. We celebrate that, but realize where these things come from. God looks at the sprawling hospitals that offer life-saving care. God looks at the at penicillin and other medicines. God looks at semiconductors and nuclear fission. God looks at power plants. He looks at rockets and satellites. He looks at the wireless smartphone that you're holding in your pocket, in your hand, our iPads, our computers. He looks at our houses. He looks at this church building. He looks at all these things and says, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. And we could only respond when we know this to be true, with the words that David spoke in Psalm 77, what God is great like our God? How might we approach God? First of all, we must behold his greatness. When we behold the greatness of God, we are properly humbled. It's from this place of humility that we begin to approach God. It says in the second part of verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look. God will regard those who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word. God will consider those who are in the right posture. God approves of those who come to him in this humble, contrite, reverent way. That leads us to this humility. The second part of verse 2 again. Humility in particular in this context about who we are, and about our religious displays, our displays of devotion in particular. We ought to be humble before God about these things. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble in spirit. Humility in the context of this is again speaking about approaching God, especially in worship. But that could mean the whole of our life. In Psalm 138, verse 6, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, or the humble, but the haughty he knows from afar. So those who come near those who are humble. Those who are haughty or prideful stand off away. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. Humility before God is, first of all, a recognition of our true place before him. And that elicits praise when we realize he accepts us into his presence. We're humbled that God would accept us into his presence, knowing of his greatness, when we realize who God is and that he accepts us through Christ, we are amazed. We are in awe about this. We are enraptured by God's gracious acceptance of us, despite what we know about ourselves as sinful, finite creatures. It's been said that the central problem of humanity is self-exaltation. We think far too highly of ourselves. Stephen Hawking, in his his article, Why God Did Not Create the Universe, makes the following statement. Although we are puny and insignificant on the scale of the cosmos, this makes us, in a sense, the lords of creation. How incoherent can you be? The haughty stand far off, but the humble he brings near to himself. Pop scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson yesterday tweeted concerning all the people offering their thoughts and prayers for the terrible, murderous massacre that happened in Florida. He says in his tweet, Evidence collected over many years, obtained from many locations, indicates that the power of prayer is insufficient to stop bullets from killing school children. Clearly, people who pray for these things are not acting as though nothing should be done. But for the haughty, for the proud, for the pompous, this is how they approach the idea of God. These men promote human exaltation. It's the scourge of humanity. It's the central problem. We exalt self. These men exude the central problem of the human race. Whereas Scripture tells the believer something very helpful. In First Peter and James again, in First Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, acknowledging the greatness of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Then in James, it says something almost identical. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Because of the Lord, humble yourselves before the Lord because you should be humbled by the Lord and his greatness. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, I used to think that this verse meant that he would exalt us or lift us up, vindicating us in front of scoffers. Or that we would eventually, you know, we'd be beat down as Christians, but eventually we'd be able to stand up and hold our head high. It's nothing to do with what the world thinks of us. Zero. It has to do with this. As we're humbled under the great hand of God, we recognize who we are, and we're low because of it. But God in Christ lifts us up. In our humility, he lifts us up so we can stand and look at our God, be in his presence. Who cares what the world thinks? We are exalted just by being accepted in the Beloved before the presence of the Father. That's the exaltation you receive, and it's far greater than vindication by some temporal beings who don't know any better. You being lifted up has to do with your relationship to God. You won't care about what other people think about you when you know God accepts you through Christ. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. This humility before God, this proper standing and understanding about our standing before God leads us to confront our sinfulness and brokenness, and this is what contrition has to do with. Uh, Humility leads us to contrition. Contrition about our sin and weakness. Look at verse 2 again. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, broken in spirit. Um, It has to do with being a Knowing of your neediness spiritually before God. You know it's true that you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps, so to speak. You can't make yourself um, be more spiritual because you're broken that way. God has to give this to you. Uh, it literally has to do with an admission of spiritual bankruptcy before God. A contrite person is lowly and afflicted in God's presence because of an acknowledged sin and weakness. It doesn't stay that way in Christ, although we'll have moments when we fall back into sin. But it's true. It's how we approach God. Recognize this. Be contrite. One commentator said, it means to be lamed in spirit. Our spirit's not haughty. It it's, understands its place. Broken because of sinfulness. This is how we approach God. Humble and contrite. You know, the opening of the service begins every week with a little bit of a dialogue between the worship leader and the congregation. This is how we stop from being lethargical in our liturgy is to, we know what it means. And what's the last thing that I or the worship leader will say? A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57, 15, you should recognize. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity Whose name is holy? I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. Wait a minute. The God of heaven and earth dwells with us who are humble and contrite. We know our place before him. We recognize it, and we're sorry for our sins. We know what our sins mean and what they've done to our relationship with God. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You know, the order of worship in general is supposed to walk us through this process. We meet God kind of in a lofty way. In fact, even the way the building's designed, uh, not supposed to be an outward display of, we think we're great. It's supposed to design to help you in the process. So you're out in the narthex, a big open area. You come through a door that focuses your attention. Then as you come in, Um, you start to prepare your heart. And there's a verse up top that talks about keeping silent, contemplating, meditating about what we're about to do. Then the call to worship, we stand and we sing a song. And we're a little slow on this opening song. I know it's not our, it's maybe only the second time we sing it, but it's a great, great opening hymn when we sing it really powerfully. We will next time. But we sing that song powerfully and it talks about giving God our immortal praise. It's usually God the Father oriented. And then we come to this moment of, of recognition that we're in God's presence and we need broken and contrite hearts. Um, we profess faith in him or we confess our faith in him by a statement of faith. But there's a point at which we realize who we're in the presence of. And even as his children, we pause and we confess our sins. And then we hear the word of the Lord and it ought to make us tremble. The, the word of the gospel should make a believer tremble. That should never get old to us that we be in awe that God has made, this great God has made himself accessible through the Son. So when I hear the word, it all feeds that gospel reality. All the scripture feeds back to that main point. It should put us on the edge of our seat waiting for the next thing to be read. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and here finally, and trembles at my word. We approach God with a reverence for his word. That is, an awe for his word. And you know what makes us tremble about his word? It's the central kernel of the scripture, which is his message of redemption through Christ. Who are you to regard us, O God? I love the, the spiritual. I refer to those when we're in the passage about the new heavens and the new earth, I refer to the different spirituals that came out of the American slave era. Um, There's one I did not refer to that we sing every Easter. Were you there when they crucified him? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when the stone was rolled away? Were you there when he rose up from the dead? It causes me to tremble. We tremble at his word because of, the, of what it announces. The evangel. The gospel announcement. And all of his words speaks back to that point. Even the obedience we are called to comes through the door of the gospel. So we wait for the word and we tremble to know that God has revealed himself specially to us. We know there's a God because of nature. It's irrational to say there isn't a God with all this design out there. But we can't know how to be right with him with just that. We need a special word. And so he gives us his word so we know how to be right with him. That should make us tremble. God would do this for us. He would not just leave us here. He would give us his gospel. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We should tremble when we read Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He, Jesus, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With who? With God. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That should make you stand in awe that revealed truth. Paul, when he writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Ephesian church and to us by extension, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath. By the way, like the rest of mankind, there's nothing that brings you to this place of acceptance with God that you have conjured. It's only that God has shown his grace. That should cause us to tremble. But God, being rich, rich in mercy, because of the great love, the great God with this great love, With which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is God's unmerited favor for you because of the works done by Christ, even though you deserved his wrath. That's what grace is. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him, and this is where he seats us heavenly places. Wait, the great God of heaven has you placed with Him through His Son so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and the kindness in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. John Newton captured it perfectly well. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, to be in awe. And grace, my fears, or me being scared, was relieved." But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. From the place of humility and contrition, we can come to God's word. From God's word, we learn the gospel and we tremble. When we comprehend the grace of God to us in Christ, we can then begin to obey his commands. Not before you know the gospel. Obedience comes from how we approach God in the first place. I began the sermon by quoting a a bit of a section from Charles Brown about the Scottish revival in 1840 near Glasgow. I didn't read all of it. I wanted to read the full quote to close. The full quote gives you a a fuller appreciation for the devotion that had swept over the people, how badly they wanted to hear the word of God. These are not people that could hop in cars and drive to church. They're going over terrible terrain in Scotland um, and in difficult weather and so forth. Listen to the full quote. It was a common thing as soon as the Bible was opened, after the preliminary services, and just as the reader began, for great meltings to come upon the hearers. The deepest attention was paid to every word as the sacred verses were slowly and solemnly enunciated. Then the silent tear might be seen stealing down the rugged but expressive face turned upon the reader." It was often a stirring sight to witness the multitudes assembling during the dark winter evenings to trace their progress as they came in all directions across the moors and the mountains by the blazing torches which they had carried to light their way to the places of meeting. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. The personal inconvenience was little thought of when the hungering soul sought to be satisfied. But this is the one to whom I will look, says God. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O oh Lord. and You are exalted as the head above all. Yet you come to us through Christ. You have reached down to save us. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but you made us alive together with Jesus. It is true, O Lord, that you have humbled us with your greatness. You have worked repentance in our hearts so that we may tremble at your word. And in particular, we tremble at the thought of the undeserved salvation that you provided through Christ in his perfect sacrifice and in his resurrection. Lord, it is from this position that we ask you now to give us obedience to your word, for your glory and for our good. Through Christ, I pray. Amen. Let us prepare for the Lord's Supper and also respond to the word of God. We'll sing the first two verses of 119. Let's stand and sing the almighty power of God. May be seated. What a joy it is for me to invite you to this table. It's not Redeemer Presbyterian Church's table, it's not the Presbyterian